1 Corinthians 3. We're going to be looking at verses 18 through 23 tonight. You'll have your Bibles there and read along with me. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you seemeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool that he may be wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, He taketh the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knoweth the thoughts of the wise, that they are vain. Therefore, let no man glory in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this passage of Scripture. Help us to use it appropriately tonight that we may grow thereby. Holy Spirit, do the work that only you can to illuminate the word and plant it deep in our lives that we might be conformed to the image of Christ and do the work you have us here to do. We ask your blessing upon this time. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. I've named this sermon tonight, Deceived Accolades kind of get to why that is here in just a moment, but unique passage of Scripture. We kind of get the idea based off where we've been with Paul writing to the church in Corinth. I'll give you a quick review, but I want you to have that in your mind as we go through this. Deceived accolades. Because, man, do we ever live in a time where people are deceived about their accolades. Look what we've done. Uh, we're... We're, we're an odd society in an odd time in human history. You know, everybody gets a trophy. And you can identify as anything. And we'll give you a trophy for that. It's, it's an odd thing. As we look around at the state of the country, you can, you can say negative things. If you look around at the state of many of the institutions that our country has held valuable as strong for many, many, many years. Things that we've said, America has the best this in the whole world. And you can fill in the blank on whatever that is. You might look around at times and say, boy, it's, it's not great right now. Or, you know, I think one of the things that we have to kind of put that mirror up against is the church. I'm a firm believer as so goes the church, so goes the rest. Now, I would probably mix that up on some people. Some people would say, so as goes the church, so goes the home. But I would say as goes the homes that make up the local church, so goes the church. So goes the county voting, so goes the state, so goes the nation. So I would ask you to work in your homes, but this is a church gathering, so I'm going to speak to us as the church tonight giving this and say to even Harpeth Baptist Church, you know, the greatest church in the world, uh, let's be careful that we're not deceived in our accolades. The church in Corinth had developed loyalties to different leaders in the church. This is what Paul's writing this letter to them about. Some of you say you're proud that you're baptized of Paul. Some are baptized of Peter. Some are baptized of Apollos. Well, God gave the increase. He said, I planted Apollos water, but God is the one who did this work. So you shouldn't be like this. So in this division they have going on in their church, they lost sight of the fact that Jesus is the church's only figurehead. A lot of times we, in a local church, will make the pastor the figurehead. In fact, that's probably a problematic term, pastor, in this regard, because it, it carries the connotation with it of shepherd. But who is the church's shepherd? Jesus is the church's shepherd. I'm not your shepherd. Jesus is your shepherd. If you wait around for chance to be your shepherd, I'm going to do a bad job. Let Jesus be your shepherd, and then I'll serve as, as his helper, and I'll help you in any way that I can. But often the, the local pastor simply has to take what's put before his face in the moment and try to get through his week in addition to doing the teaching and preaching that he has to do in that time. If we're not careful, we expect the local pastor to be all things to all men as Jesus can be because he's all-knowing and omnipresent and he's all-powerful. And we kind of get confused on what's going on here. And then the church fails us and then we're disappointed in the church. Well, I would encourage you tonight to keep your focus on Christ and not on a man. This is what the church in Corinth is saying. Paul is writing to them and saying, Apollos played a role. Paul played a role. Cephas played a role. But God's the one who did this work. And it's glory to God alone and not to any of these men. The pastor is only a steward. It has a great role to play. I don't, I don't undermine the role that I get to play 
in the church one bit whatsoever. I'm so honored. I pray most every day of the week. Lord, thank you that you put me in the ministry. I used to pray. I used to pray every day. Paul wrote to Timothy. He found you faithful putting you into the ministry. And I used to pray every day. Lord, please put me in the ministry. And now I pray every day. Lord, thank you for putting me in the ministry. And I try to do my best every day. And most days I end. And my wife says, what's wrong with you? And I'll say, well, I'm, I meant to do this today. I meant to do that today. I didn't get around to doing this today. That's the way it should be. Because I'm simply a steward of the things that we have here. And then a lot of you serve in leadership. And then we all as a body handle these things together. But Jesus is the shepherd. The Corinthian church, and I think often the American church, has forgotten that the leaders to whom they claimed allegiance are merely Christ's servants. And as a result of this, they were divided among themselves. They were contrary to one another. This situation damaged their gathering of the church. Remember last time we talked about it as building materials, built with gold, silver, precious stones, not wood, hay, stubble, because in the end it's all going to be tried by fire. And then that which was, what remains is how you're going to be rewarded. Wood, hay, and stubble is quick, it's easy, it's cheap, but it burns up. Gold, silver, precious stones, it's expensive. It takes a long time to get but it remains. And this is how we want it to be. So as we think about building materials from last time, I want us to move over now into this idea here of these deceived accolades. Because if we're not careful, we fall into this same thinking as the Corinthians did, that building materials aside, what about our builders? We put people on pedestal as our leaders and we say, Despite the materials, if we like the guy, then everything's going to be okay. And we've got, I'll say 30 to be nice, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to, I would bet, I didn't do the math, but I would bet 60 years, maybe 70 years of church history in the American church that we could point out to where that philosophy is failing. Don't get me wrong, I'm not a, I'm not a the church is dead guy. I love the church. I spend all my time with the church. I've devoted my life to the church. But I'm all about, man, if the, if the ship needs to be steered just a little bit more this way, well, let's steer it by all means. I've never been one to have a problem admitting my mistakes. I've never been one to have too much pride to just like own it and go and move on. That's just, I don't know why I'm that way. I don't say that bragging. That's just how I am. I guess I'm, I'm a big goofball and I just screw up a lot. So I... <laughs> Here I am. Oh. When I was, in, when I was in, in my high school yearbook, the quote they put under my picture, you know, they put a quote about you in your high school yearbook. Mine was, oh, my bad. <laughs> don't lie. That is the quote under my name in my high school yearbook. It's just how I'm wired. I don't, I don't mind that. Now, I don't want to be a doomsday guy on the other hand, too. Of all the things in the world that we got going right, boy, we still have the church. And Jesus said to Peter, I'm going to build the church on the rock and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And in the early church in Acts, the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. These people are saying, the Holy Spirit came down like a mighty rushing wind. Now what do we do? And God said, you let me take care of that. And so they continued doing the things that they had been doing, giving themselves to the apostles' teaching, praying, breaking bread, prayers. And the Lord kept adding to the church. But somewhere along the line, especially in the American church, and, and I'm using the American church because that's who we are, but you can follow church history and other places after they've had revivals and reformations. And they've gone through the exact same historical patterns that we have. And where we're headed is where England is finally, I think, coming out of is they eventually turned all of their churches basically into museums. They'd all heard enough Bible. They'd all been to vacation Bible school. They had all heard all the lessons. They saw no reason to go over there and hear that guy tell the same old stories from that book over and over and over again. Say these beautiful buildings, well, what do we do with them? Well, we'll let tourists come look at them. And we'll say, well, that was so-and-so's pulpit and that was so-and-so's pulpit. And they became a very secular society until God woke them up and then they began to get revived again. And you don't understand that the American church is headed in that exact same path. And, and, and I don't even watch news. I bet you if I was watching news, some of you are probably looking at me and saying, you're finally giving this sermon? It's about time. We've been waiting 10 years for this one. Well, I'm giving it to you because it's in the passage tonight. Well, this caused this church in Corinth to be divided among themselves. It damaged their gathering of the church, and you and I can fall into that same trap. 
Richard Pratt says, when we discover a leader or a teacher whom we respect, we develop loyalties to them, to their thinking, to the way they do things. Because of that, many troubles develop in the church over egos, over personalities in church leadership. So with all of this in mind, Paul has kind of been building this up in chapters 1, 2, and the first part of chapter 3. He picks up here in verse number 18 with this phrase, let no one deceive himself. Let no man deceive himself. And he goes back to that old argument, the wisdom of the world versus the wisdom of God. Now, we laid that down solid. If you weren't here the first couple of weeks, maybe three or four in Corinthians, I spent a whole lot of time saying the wisdom of the world, the wisdom of God, the wisdom of the world, the wisdom of God. Who wins? God wins, right? But we, we will spend some time on that, but, but we need to stay in that first part of that verse, understanding what we know already from Corinthians. Some will deceive themselves. Paul's warning here. His statement that is an imperative is don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. If, if any among you seems to be wise in this world, let him become a fool that he may be wise. The wisdom of the world will not work for the church. The church should be operating in a way that seems foolish to the world and it'll be very wise to God. Now let me make that case for you. Warren Wiersbe makes a great point as he begins his commentary on this section. He says it comes as a shock to some church members that you cannot manage a local church the same way you run a business. If you've ever been on the leadership board of any church, you understand that just becomes the thing. You, you try to do it in a business-like way. I'm not saying we shouldn't take some business wisdom and apply it to the church. I think that's good. We have that in our church. The finances of our church are real want, well run because we've had accountants, people with that kind of background look at it over the years and, and have done a fine job with that. I'm thankful for that. But any of you who've ever dealt with the books of the church realize that no matter how great of a beautiful budget you put together there, you have this soft-hearted preacher in the mix who makes plans halfway through the year that weren't originally part of the plan and says, oh, come on, can't we do this? And we decide to spend some money. That, that's a clue to some of you that I haven't asked. It's coming, just wait till the next meeting. I really want to do something, and it's going to take some dough. <laughs> Y'all all right over there? We good? All right. So... Wiersbe says it right. Paul here has just finished writing about using the correct materials in building the church. Here he continues with the idea of having the proper plan. The wisdom of the world will not work for the church. This is not to say we can't glean from the world's wisdom, but we must first always primarily be led by Scripture through the Holy Spirit. And don't miss that last part. Man, there's so many... Good churches that could be dynamic churches in the world today, but they cut it off at the Holy Spirit. There's some amazing people who can exposit the Word of God and understand the doctrines you're here better than any of us in here. But they're just, it's like they're dead to the Holy Spirit. When you're dead to the Holy Spirit, you don't know what to do with all of this you've come to understand. It's like you, you have it, you know it, you can quote it, you can tell people about it, but then what? So we've got to be primarily led by Scripture through the Holy Spirit. And this is going to lead to some things that seem foolish to the world. Verse 18, if any among you seemeth to be wise in the world. For those who seem to be wise in this world, any whom the world would deem wise, more so any who think they are wise by a worldly standard, what does he say? Become a fool so that you can actually be wise. Meaning be wise according to the Scriptures. Be wise in obeying the Holy Spirit's leading. Paul's saying here, you in the church, and I think Paul's specifically talking to leadership, but I want to address the crowd tonight, myself included. He's saying you should often seem foolish to the world. Now, is that the mantra of the American church in the last 30 years? Not at all. What's the word instead of foolish? Who knows it? Relevant. That's the word. It's killing, it's choking the modern church. I've been talking to our men in our Monday night Bible studies, and we're just studying through the Bible, Genesis through Revelation, 
taking a book at a time. And by the way, men, I saw Brother Scotty playing. We're having ours at the steakhouse this next time. The ladies did it, so the men are doing it. So I'm going to teach you, what are we up to? Deuteronomy, Judges? Is that the next book in the Bible? At the steakhouse, so that would be pretty good. But I've been teaching this to the men. Be wise according to the Scriptures. What does that look like in my home? It means you don't always have the answer as the man. You want to. I'm a man. You say, we're going to go to the Word. We're going to ask God. We're going to be led by the Holy Spirit. And you, you mirror this to your family. I was talking to one of our men just this past week, and he was saying to me, he said, man, I've been doing that. He said, God has changed my life. I've got the best job I've ever had before. And, and I don't mean this as a prosperity thing. God may change your life, and, and He may take your job, but you'll be happy because you'll have joy. But this guy was saying, I've been doing this and my family's never been in a better place. My career's never been in a better place. My relationship with other people's been in a, never been in a better place. And he said, and I'm beginning to start this ministry that my secular company is going to pay for. He said, I never thought that'd be possible. Said, Praise the Lord. This is how you turn the world upside down. How did he do that? Did he, did he become relevant? No, nah, he got weird. By the world standards, he got odd. They said, every time we see that guy, he's talking about the Holy Ghost. What is he, like into ghosts now? What's the thing here? And we asked him, did you want to go to lunch? And he said, well, well let me ask the Holy Spirit if it'd be all right if I go to lunch. And he went anyways. We knew he liked hot dogs. Now I'm being a little facetious there, but you get the point. What, why, why, what should we not ask God about? Wearsby goes on to say here, the world depends upon promotion, prestige, the influence of money and important people. The church depends on prayer, the power of the spirit, humility, sacrifice, and service. You see the difference? But can you just like lay out the last 20 years of your life in the church and tell me which category it probably more felt like? And I'm even making Harpeth guilty here. The world depends on promotion, prestige, the influence of money and important people. The church depends on prayer, the power of the Spirit, humility, sacrifice, and service. I'll use myself as an example. It's been pretty humbling the last few months begging to use the Bib Center. But I was pretty full of pride the last few months before that. Every time I went to a pastor's meeting and they'd say, boy, that new church building y'all built is beautiful. It is. Have you seen the stained glass? Throw my chest out real big. That's the world's way, isn't it? There's nothing wrong with having that. There's nothing wrong with having the best. I think it pays to serve God. I think God's going to give His people the best when they're doing His will. In fact, I think a group of people who are determined we're going to be led of the Spirit, we're going to live out the Word, we're going to do what God wants us to do, He'll take other measures out of our way so that we can focus on that. I think money won't have to be an issue. I think health might not have to be an issue. Where do we read about that in the book of Acts? Though somebody was sick, they just healed them. I can't think of an illustration in Acts. I can think of one in the Gospels. They needed money and Jesus just got money for them out of the fish's mouths. I think these things become issues when we rely on worldly wisdom and they we get the same problems that the world has. The church is not supposed to have these same problems. We're to be this odd example of why are these people this way? Proof text that for you. Egypt's going through plagues. Where's Israel? Goshen. It's dark in Egypt. It's lit up over there in Goshen. Why the, it's dark over here. What are the slaves? Why do they have lights? What's the division here between the world's way and the church's way? The division is faith. This is the truly dividing factor for the believer. So the question that I need to present to you is can you operate in singular? Faith. What I mean by singular faith is you plus God and nothing more. Can you operate that way? Can you pray, believe, and then live it out? Lord, do you want me to do this? And he gives you peace about it and says, go for it. And you stick right there and live it out. Lord, do you want me to do this? And he doesn't give you peace. He says, no. Can you tell yourself no? It's hard on Americans. We like, to, we like to say yes. 
If that bank won't help us pay for the yes, then this bank will. And we take our business over there. Do you always rely upon or need outside confirmation or can it be you and God and you live that out by faith? And I'm not trying to contradict Scripture. I'm a firm believer in, in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. In the multitude of counselors, there is wisdom. The Bible says both of those in the Proverbs. I don't do much that I don't talk to my wife, my father, and I've got about three preacher friends that I talk things over with. I like a multitude of counselors. But sometimes, well, I'll give you a specific example. Move from Georgia, sell my house, sell my cars, except for buying a $3,000 minivan, pack my children up and go to Bible college as a 26-year-old. My flesh said, don't do this. My wife said, please don't do this. Said, I'll go with you. She said, I'll be Ruth. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will go. But I'd rather, could you go to college in Georgia? My parents said, don't do this. My pastor said, don't do this. My dad's friends who were using him in evangelism across the country called me up and said, don't do this. And they were mean about it. And they said, we'll blacklist your dad if you go to that school. You didn't know Christians were mean, did you? Worldly wisdom Christians are. Christians who know Scripture but don't have the Holy Spirit or use the Holy Spirit are mean. They're legalistic. And they're not nice. And they hurt your feelings and make you cry. But I felt like it was what the Lord was telling me to do. I didn't like it. I didn't want to go there. We had a nice house. I had a swimming pool. It was near a park with a baseball field. And I had two sons. I had a pretty new Ford F-150 extended cab. That was before those four-door trucks. They had those flip-out side ones. It was awesome. I loved it. I was coaching sports for our Christian school and our church. We were successful. The team I was raising up, the year I moved away, won the state championship. Oh, of course they won the state championship. I put all the work in, some new coach took over, and they won the state championship. But I was never more in the perfect will of God than the year and a half I lived in Lynchburg, Virginia. We were broke. We, you know my potato story. For about a week, we had one bag of potatoes. Jack want, little Jack wanted a cup of milk, eat a potato, so have water and a potato. We sliced and diced and boiled and fried and mashed and we made all kinds of potatoes until Aunt Redonna found out. And then Aunt Redonna sent money. <laughs> she said, why did you tell us? And I was like, well, I'm full of pride. It was a great time. I remember two or three weeks into that coming home from school and telling Sinead, I don't know if I was saved before today, but I'm saved today. She said, what? You were a youth pastor in a church for eight years. And I said, yeah, but nobody ever taught me Romans 8, 9, 10, and 11. And I had a professor sit me down and just take me through it and teach it to me. And I said, boy, I know I'm saved now. Why? Because I singularly stepped out on faith before God and just said, okay, Lord, this seems odd. Seems like not the right thing to do, but if it's what you want me to do, it's what I'll do. And everybody in Georgia, they had a going away day for us. I just got a picture. My little youth Sunday school class from the last day there. Everybody cried. They said, will you come back? And I said, yeah, we'll come back. That's the plan. I'm going to finish college. We're going to come right back. And then some weird 80-year-old grumpy preacher from Kingston Springs, Tennessee, <laughs> called me and said, you're going to come here and be our pastor. And those of you who know Brother Ron know that's exactly what he said to me. He didn't say, would you? He didn't say, we'd like you to. He didn't say, this is how much we're going to pay you. He said, I met your dad last week in Owensboro, Kentucky. Me and him talked. You're going to come here and be our pastor. <laughs> well, if dad said so, I guess that's what I'm doing. <laughs> it was sad to not move back to Georgia. Boy, it's been, it's just been wonderful since. Why? Stepping out in faith. Can you do this? We all have to be doing this. And you don't all have to move to Lynchburg and into Kingston Springs. You might just need to step into the neighbor's yard. But singularly acting in faith, living this out. Eventually, on some things, we must mature in faith and act on our own based off Scripture through prayer and the power of the Holy Spirit by faith. Are you there in your Christian life? Where you can take Scripture and prayer and the Holy Spirit and act by faith. This is harder 
than simply seeing what works in the world around us, which has been the church's model for too many years. We see what works in the world around us. We employ some staff to our church who we think can execute that for our church. And then we sit back and we're proud of ourselves because we see our local little church begin to grow. It happens all the time. And they have instant growth, but it's wood, hay, and stubble. And I'm not saying that's always the case. You could probably think of an instance where that wasn't the case. Praise the Lord for it, right? But often in the modern church, we're seeing this model happen over and over and over again. A guy who'd make a great CEO at a local company gets hired in with a high salary to be a CEO of a church and runs it just like he would the local company. And it's a well-oiled machine. But there's no growth. Paul's instruction to the Corinthians here And he's definitely talking about something a little different. I'm applying it to the modern church. But Paul's point here, this is not sustainable eternally. That's what he said in verse 13, 14, and 15, isn't it? Look back at those. Every man's work shall be made manifest for the day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. And that applies to the church, that applies to your home, that applies to your career, every single bit of it. True church, church growth, that which lasts in eternity, will seem foolish by worldly standards. The, the question becomes, well, how are you going to get them here? You know, the them. How are you going to get people to show up? And when your answer is, we're just going to trust the Holy Spirit to send over here who He wants here. Well, that's weird. It's working. No, this is what you need to do. You need to do this and this and this and this. And we do some of that. I'm not saying we don't. Like I remember one of the first conversations I ever had with Brother Homer Dotson was, he said, it would be good for our church to have a nice website. And I said, hey, I could do a website. And so I was... <laughs> I was sitting in a class at Bible college with my laptop, not paying attention to my professor who I was paying to teach me things, and I was making a website for Harvard Baptist Church. It felt pretty good to put a page on there about the pastor. I had never been a pastor before. Snap a picture of myself, throw it up there. He is a grad, graduate of Liberty University. If my professor would have known, he would say, you're not yet, buddy. So that's okay. I'm not saying that's a problem. I can't wait for the day that we can put a big sign out on Highway 70. So the whole world knows, hey, there's a church over here. The, talking about things being delayed, the contractor told us today the steeple's delayed. I was like, ah, I want the steeple back so bad. The outside lights are on at the church. I think the parking lot lights are on. The steeple would be lit up tonight. That would be nice. But how are we truly getting them here? It's, it's not. It's the Holy Spirit. How did you get here? Um, I don't mean to embarrass Miss Sue, but your story comes to mind there. Got the boy's haircut when they were little and found out that was the preacher and went to the church, right? Isn't that the story? Haircuts. That's the Holy Spirit. Then the question becomes by worldly wisdom up against foolish church standards. You people are crazy. I can't believe you could do better than this. The question becomes, how are you going to keep them there? Teach doctrine. There's not much else that we've done over the years that people decided to stick around for that I'm aware of. I'm assuming it's not my delightful personality. <laughs> right? It's not that. My mother will tell you that. She's my mother. You teach doctrine. How do we figure that? How did I figure that out as a young pastor? People started coming to our church. They, not because they heard of me or they heard of our church. They got sick of where they were. And when I got to the root of why they were sick of where they were, they were saying, we are hungry for doctrine. We would love to come here if you'll just teach us the word. And yeah. Uh, matter of fact, I went to college for that. I'd love to teach you the word. But that seems foolish to the world. Doctrine is hard. Doctrine divides. Doctrine offends. People still want to have doctrine. How are you going to fund all this? Well, I kind of like Brother Hartzer's way. That sounded pretty good. 
$10,000 checks in your pocket is nice. That goes right to what I want to say to you tonight. Trust God to prick people's hearts to give. That's how. What about child care? I don't know, I'm going to offend some here, but the moms care for their kids all day. I'm sure better than anybody else, they can care for them right here. And heaven forbid we ever become one of those stiff-necked churches where it's wrong that a baby cries. If your child is in the nursery tonight, I'm not mad at you for that. I'm just saying, we're not going to stop church because we can't get somebody in the nursery or we just didn't have nursery tonight. Let's just bring them in here. Will's over there having a blast. He shot Stephen a couple times. He's eyeing Riley down with his cowboy boots. I mean, if, if Will took, just took a Ralph around through here, you remember Justin and Jody, they, they lived here for a while, but they moved to Ohio. I, one of my favorite nights in church, all of a sudden I saw Jordan Goodbell just take a lap around the church. I said, man, he's in the Holy Spirit. But all of a sudden I saw his daddy come up this aisle, get smarter than the kid, go back that aisle, catch him out the back, take him right to the bathroom, wear him out, bring him back in. A little sobbing, wet-eyed little boy. <laughs> he came in and he sat in his chair the rest of the time. We just kept on having church. Which one was it? Was it Jesse? It was Jason. Just came up on stage with me one Sunday morning. Was that Jojo? The world didn't end. The live stream kept going. People got fed the word. We're all right. What's the big deal? The big deal is we've been fed a lie for all these years. If you don't have a good youth program, people won't come to your church. They'll start coming that way, but they'll eventually leave because they're hungry or their kids aren't getting doctrine. Well, what are you going to do about the youth then? You know, it's the funniest thing. Don't you think those kids need to learn doctrine too? We've got some sitting in here tonight. I'm glad you're here. Thanks for coming, young people. Well, what about outreach? Don't you got to have some designed, coordinated outreach programs? Here's what I've learned. And I think we need some more of that as our church. And I've talked to you about that recently. But people sure of their doctrine will tell, talk to other people. People who are hungry for doctrine and don't quite understand the Bible, they won't. What about evangelism? Those with the truth want the lost to have it. The day after I came home from Bible college and that professor had taught me Romans 8 and 9 and 10, boy, if you were a lost sinner in my path, you better look out. You were going to get it shoved down your throat after that. Let me tell you what God's done for you, buddy. What do you mean you don't want to be saved? This is awesome. You should be saved. Why aren't people that zealous? They've never been taught it. Why? Because their church was afraid they'd lose some of their membership, not be able to pay for the mortgage on their over-leveraged facilities if they actually taught election, predestination, and foreknowledge to the elect. What an odd thing. Well, wait a minute now. What about a music program? And I love music. I'm not good at singing, but I love to listen to music. To pick on y'all a little bit. Two of my favorite people in the whole world to hear perform music is Ryan and Desiree. Y'all don't go by that, though, do you? You don't get any credit. It's just Desi. I'm up there for my good looks. Well, me too. I understand. <laughs> But what's the music program got to be? Well, by the world's wisdom, it's got to be a performance. You've got to have a band. They've got to get up here and entertain you. Well, ours is wrong then. Because somewhere along the lines, we just said, you know what? We think Martin Luther's right. We're just going to sing doctrine. They won't, listen to, they won't listen and learn doctrine. Maybe if we sing it, they'll get it. How many times have you guys heard me trying to teach you a doctrine? And I'll say, Let me, there's this song I learned as a little boy. And I'll sing you that little song that I learned as a kid who helped me learn that doctrine. It'll always be in my brain. The early church that we find in the book of Acts wasn't a worldly wisdom church. They owned no property. They had no influence in government or other local powers. They had no treasury. I think eventually we see them begin to establish at least like a widow's fund. Or they begin to sell property and bring it to the church, right? But initially they had no treasury. Their leaders were ordinary men without education in the right schools. They didn't operate with any growth methods. 
And what's recorded about this early church? They turned their world upside down for Jesus. What's recorded about the modern church? Scandal, meanness, division, hypocrisy. The early church wasn't deceived. The early church didn't seek worldly wisdom. They obeyed the Holy Spirit, though they often seemed foolish. And you and I, we look back on them now and we say, boy, that Acts church, these were some wise people. Look at verse 18. What did, what did Paul say? If any man among you seemeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool. What? That he may be wise. That's what he's saying. He said, if you'll go against what the world is telling you should do, and you'll do what the Holy Spirit and the Word are telling you to do, you'll seem foolish for a time to the world. But throughout the eons of history, they'll look back and say, that was a wise bunch of people. Now, I want to give you an illustration, and I'll be finished to help you realize. And I know I've just got through one verse. I can get the other verses in quick. <laughs> That's what every preacher says, isn't it? I want to show you, this has just come to my attention recently, but it works well as an illustration of how this is played out in the current American culture with our church gatherings. And I'm not saying this is the end all of the problem. In fact, what I'm going to give you is an illustration of what is the greater problem. I gave you some illustrations last Wednesday night, but I didn't preface it like that. And I think we kind of took some of those to heart. I, I didn't mean it like that. I meant these are illustrations of what could be the problems. And in this regard, Here's something we can put our hands on as this is an actual problem in the modern American church. But this is just one small part of a greater problem. Be, be sure there. For the last 30 to 40 years, maybe even 50 years, the church has been in a war. What is it called? Worship war. So many books written about the worship wars. It's called this because so much of it had to do with preference on musical style or genres that were allowable or not allowable in the church gatherings. You know our rule, right? Sing doctrine. If you want to rap some doctrine, you're less set for rhyme. Any, anybody else wants to rap some? Well, I think you might actually do it. You'd probably do a good job. Is that it? Is that the right one? Yeah, all right. Hey, you know what? I don't mind Southern Gospel if it's doctrinal. Same doctrine. A lot of people like a lot of different doctrines. But for some reason, all of a sudden, and it's going on for decades now, this just infighting among the church over what's the right kind of worship. Well, there's only one kind of worship, and that's biblical worship. Everything else is idolatry. And some of you have been at church gatherings where you've been in an actual battle in this war, haven't you? I've never have, and I'm thankful for that. Mostly because I had hard-nosed preachers who was just, this is the way it's going to be, and I don't care what you think about it. But outside the music fight, that was kind of the forefront. That's what you saw. That's what you could put your finger on. There was an internal fight going on over orthodoxy. See, it became coined in phrases like, are we to be traditional or contemporary? Well, if we want to be relevant... We must be contemporary. Are we to entertain or are we to educate? Should it be a classical or a modern translation of the Scriptures? All of these things come down to a simple argument, and I'm just going to use the term orthodoxy. And you can give me a million other things there that the American church has been warring, not against Satan. See, that's the problem I want to point out. I could give two cents about worship wars. Just find a good church and don't worry about it. <laughs> amen? I was hoping y'all would say amen there because you have, right? But we don't, we don't uh, advertise our music program, you understand. That's my point. We just sing hymns. That's what we do. You don't get popular in your community or in the denominational meetings for having the church that sings the hymns like nobody's business. Because you know, we had a great compliment a few years back. I was invited to preach at Burns Baptist Church, and we all went over. Do y'all remember that night? And the preacher got up. Do you remember what he said? He scorned his own church that night in front of company. I'll never scorn y'all in front of company, I don't think. But he said, Burns Baptist Church, do y'all hear Harpeth how loud they're singing? I said, hey, we've never been known for our music program. This is great. 
I just told him later, I said, I'm a loud mouth and I sing really loud. They turn the mic off when I'm in front of it. I guess that's maybe part of it. I don't know. The, the problem is not that. That's just a symptom. The war being fought is the devil causing things like that to stir up infighting in the, in the church so that we're not fighting him. And look what's happened to our country. While we've been deciding, should we be doing Martin Luther songs or Chris Tomlin songs, the devil has stolen our White House, the devil has stolen our schools, the devil has wrecked our homes. And the church is looking around and saying, what, what, are, we, what are we supposed to do? Well, Paul says it here to the Corinthian church. Stop this. Stop saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. We're of Jesus. We're to follow Christ. I was listening to a veteran of this war. How many of you are familiar with Chuck Swindoll? Most of you, okay. I, I had listened to Chuck Swindoll in a long time. And I recently went through a little personal turmoil and someone said to me, who are you listening to right now? And it was the typical, John MacArthur, Bodie Bauckham, R.C. Sproul. No offense to any of those guys, but I wish you'd turn on some Chuck Swindoll. He's very encouraging. He'll help you out. And I said, okay. First day I turned it on, I disagreed with, with him on his stance on whipping children. And I said, oh, I told Shanae, I said, I knew there was a reason I quit listening to this guy. But outside of that, everything else he said was very biblical and helpful. And it came at me from a different position. In fact, it came at me from a position I wish I, I was better at presenting the message like, like he is to you guys. And I work on that. It doesn't always have to be like this, you know. But he's a veteran of this war. Let, let me give you this real quick. Because he, he just, they're, they're just replaying some messages to him, I think from the late 90s, about the worship wars. But he gets to the root of the problem like we're doing tonight. But I think he's somebody we could say is given it from wise, elderly insight. He's 87 years old. He was born in 1934. You think a person born in 1934 has a pretty good take on American history? You think a guy who was born in 1934 who's been pastoring since the 50s has a pretty good take on American church history? I think he probably does. He's a Marine. He's a graduate of Dallas Theological Seminaries and a whole lot of other ones. He trained under Ju Dwight Pentecost, J. Dwight Pentecost for a time. It's a familiar name. He notably pastored First Evangelical Church in Fullerton, California from 1971 until 1994. So this is not some mega church pastor who... You know, it, it grew up really quick and then it fanned out. They had 6,000 people in that church when he resigned. He resigned because he was at a time of life where he was thinking like, maybe I can't do this anymore. And Dallas Theological Seminary said, come be our president. So in 1994, kind of finished with pastoral ministry, done it all these years successfully. He goes to become the president of Dallas Theological Seminary. One of the most famous quotes you'll ever hear from a pastor is he said, I showed up to the seminary, but I stunk like the sheep. And he said, we both found out really well, really quick, that I stunk at being the president of that seminary, but I was re really good at being a pastor, a shepherd, under-shepherd. So once he fulfilled his contract with them, there near Dallas, he founded Stonebriar Community Church, which is where he is now, that has 3,500 people. So I, I put those numbers out there, to not to always say bigger is better and best, but just to say, this is not some small church preacher like me who's saying there's a big problem in the world and we need to do something about it, which if, if most small church pastors had larger churches, larger crowds, newer cars, bigger salaries, would never say any of that, right? This is a guy who had access to any and all of that stuff. Tops as it gets in the preacher's world. He's the MVP. He's the Hall of Famer. Nationally and internationally syndicated radio TV programs for years. He says this, it's been my observation as I study the war that much of it is fueled by man-centered schemes and flesh-driven promotion. Now, I should give you more, but I don't have time. He, he's, he's, he's bringing that in after saying, we've jumped on a lot of those man-centered schemes and flesh-driven promotions over the years in the churches that, that he's led. He said, I remember talking with pastors who were enamored with that and some of them now are seeing the light. One of the better known churches that prompted this has recently said we were wrong. 
We thought that what we were doing would build people into worshipers, and we realized it was not happening. We need to return to the teaching of the Scriptures. So here you got a veteran church pastor talking to a young megachurch pastor with lots and lots and lots of people, tens of thousands of people, and both agreeing, this is what we've been trying to do. We meant well, but it was wrong. There's a problem. We've got to fix it. He goes on to quote from Stephen Lawson. Who we, would, we love Steve Lawson's doctrine. And this is from an essay Steve Lawson wrote for Biblioteca in 2001. He said, when man-centered schemes are followed, often imitating the world schemes, does that sound familiar to what Paul is saying here? The flesh provides the energy and man receives the glory. That's the truth. And then he, he says this later in that essay. He says, in a strange twist, the preaching of the cross is now foolishness, not only to the world, but also to the contemporary church. God help us if we ever get to a place where the preaching of the cross seems like an odd thing to bring up. Well, maybe we'll let it go on Good Friday, but the rest of the year, preacher, let's keep it positive. I don't know anything more positive than Jesus gave his life for mine, and now my sins are eternally forgiven. It's pretty doggone positive. But for many years, this type of manly wisdom has infected the American church. It's caused divisions. And this is not the only case, but this is a good one for our illustration tonight. And thankfully, I, I see this and I, as a pastor. I think, well, maybe we're getting to the end of this thing. Maybe the church is waking up and we'll actually start fighting Satan again instead of fighting ourselves over things like this. But Paul writes here in verse 19 and 20 that in God's sight, worldly wisdom is foolishness. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, for it is written, He taketh the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knoweth the thoughts of the wise that they are vain. Paul's following that statement that God sees worldly wisdom as foolishness with two quotations. One from Job 5.13, that's the first one, where he says, The Lord knoweth the thoughts of the wise, verse 20. Job 5.13 says, He taketh the wise in their own craftiness, and the counsel of the forward is carried headlong. So you've got to get where Job was here in chapter number five. He's caught inside this place of either having to depend upon his own reasoning or accept the wisdom of God. And, and where's he getting counsel from? Humans. Yeah. And thank God for friends. And I think his friends meant well. And I'm not throwing his friends under the bus. If I get in a Job situation, you better show up to my house and tell me to get right with God. Dude, you've got to get right. What's going on? But Job is in a position here of knowing one thing, I am right with God. What did Job have to decide? What am I going to do? Am I going to listen to a multitude of counselors? Or am I me plus God and nobody else, even his own wife? Am I going to step out on faith and go in this direction? See what Paul's saying here? The world's wisdom is foolishness. But with God, there's true wisdom. And then he quotes Psalm 94, 11. The Lord knoweth the thoughts of man that they are vanity. And in this section of Psalm 94, it is the psalmist pointing out that God mocks those who follow human wisdom over God's wisdom. And just think of that. Paul's point to the Corinthians here is that taking this path leads to actively working against God. We don't always think about it like that, do we? We just think, well, I'm just going to try it this way. Well, I'm going to do something else. But God's way is simple. Read his word. Let the Holy Spirit guide you. Pray about it. Let the Holy Spirit guide you. When we decide to do something other than that, we are actually actively working against God. Well, what happens then? God's going to actively work against you. And who wins that fight? Not you. Pratt writes here, people who exalt human wisdom and rebellion against God will find that God overcomes and destroys their efforts. So Paul says, let's not deceive ourselves. And then he finishes with, let no man glory in men. Verse 21, let, let, therefore let no man glory in men for all things are, your, for, are ours, are yours. This is him saying solely Deo Gloria, glory to God alone. He goes on to write, every believer in the church belongs to one another. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. None of them belong to Paul. 
None of them belong to Apollos. None of them belong to Cephas. This is what they were saying, but none of them belong to these men. If anything, these men belong to them. We can't help but have our personal preferences when it comes to the way different men minister the word to us. I understand that. Who are you listening to right now? You tell me somebody else. I'm listening to Chuck Swindoll. You're listening to somebody else. We like people's presentation differently. As long as they're giving us doctrine, well then praise the Lord for it. But up against that, we must remember that we belong to Christ. We belong to that man. We must remember that person that's teaching us the word. They belong to Christ. And Paul concludes here by saying Christ is God's. And he notes just how rich we are in Christ. Verse 22, or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all of this is yours. I was thinking today as I was going through this, I said, well, how is death mine? And how is that a richness? But, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? Even death is ours. We are vastly rich in Christ. All of this is ours. So Paul's point is, why the division? Why the rivalry? To the modern church, we would say, why the lack of focus on the goal? Follow God, fight the devil. Actually, just resist the devil, I think, is, is plenty, right? R.C. Sproul comments here. He says, this principle demonstrates the pettiness and absurdity of the Corinthians quarreling. If we belong to Christ, then because of him, all things belong to us. And he proof text Romans 8, Romans 8, 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. And then Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am persuaded that neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I'll end tonight with J. Vernon McGee. He says, oh, how wonderful it is that we do not have to be confined to one narrow group or one particular denomination. Instead of feeling that we belong to so-and-so and can be taught by only one particular teacher or preacher, we can know that all the men of God belong to us. How wonderful. The reason I get along with Pentecostal brethren is because I know they belong to God. Oh, my friend, those folk belong to me too, and I belong to them. How glorious it is to meet around the person of Christ with other believers who are on the foundation, which is Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray.